This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. We do not censor information. Securing elections is a nonpartisan activity. And quite frankly, somebody who's worked in Democratic and Republican administrations, you know, somebody who served the American people my whole life, in peacetime and combat, sworn to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States, including and in particular the First Amendment, I want to be very clear, we do not censor anything. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. This past week, the CSIS Strategic Technologies Program hosted director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Jen Easterly, for a conversation on the future of U.S. cyber and infrastructure security, including the agency's strategic plan for 2023 to 2025. This conversation was moderated by former acting director of Smart Women Smart Power, Suzanne Spaulding. And so Smart Women Smart Power is delighted to share this timely and critical conversation with you. Hope you enjoy and learn something new. Jen, so great to have you here. Thank you for coming. You've got an awful lot on your plate. And we want to, you know, do a bit of a deep dive in some of your front burner issues. And then we'll pull back and and provide some of the strategic context for that. But, but, you know, between uh, elections, which are going on right now, the election day uh, next Tuesday, and we've still got, obviously, a conflict raging in Ukraine with a very active cyber element to that and the risk of that expanding and lots going on. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's let's start with that most urgent, I think, you know, uh, concern, which is around our elections. Um, CISA has the broad mission for uh, elections, the, the function that our elections are meant to serve, right? So not just the cybersecurity of the IT infrastructure, right. but making sure that our election is, is able to perform the function we look to it to perform, which is make, uh, provide for the peaceful transition or retention of power in our yeah. country, yeah. right? And that's a cyber and physical and information Absolutely. cognitive piece. So talk to us a bit about each of those elements. Yeah. Well, first of all, so great to be here with you. And thanks so much to my friend Jim and uh, to everybody who's spending the time. It's great. You know, I think of you as the spiritual godmother of CISA, uh, given all the amazing work you did to turn us into an operational component from a staff element. And then the foundational work you did as a commissioner on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which really ended up elevating CISA status, giving us more authorities and capabilities, and uh, gave us the JCDC. So thank you, thank you. Lovely to be here with you. I'm nearly on the verge of our fourth birthday. Um, I do want to just step back a little bit. I think probably everybody in the audience knows CISA's mission, but it's it's worth mentioning. You know, newest agency in the federal government, um, stood up by Congress. Uh, November of 2018, and the mission is to lead the national effort to understand, manage, and reduce risk to the critical infrastructure, cyber and physical, that Americans rely on every hour of every day. And it's not some technical term, as you very well know. It's how we get gas at the pump and food at the grocery store and money from the ATM, power, water, all of that. And so 
critical mission, as you well know. Um, and then within those two, that broad mission, as you alluded to, Suzanne, sort of two key roles, and those are reflected in the strategic plan, and really excited to have Val and uh, company and, and our friends talk about it. But the first two pillars are um, ensure the defense and resilience of cyberspace, so uh, America's cyber defense agency, very important role. And then the second, risk reduction and resilience. So that's all about being the national coordinator for critical infrastructure resilience and security. We serve, as you know, the sector risk management agency for eight sectors and one subsector. Uh, subsector is election infrastructure, right? And we are seven days out from our midterm elections. And, you know, as you know, and I think as everybody knows, uh, the federal government doesn't run elections, right? It's the state and local officials that run those elections that are on the front lines of protecting democracy. And what do we do? We ensure that they have the tools, the resources, the capabilities, and the information to be able to run safe and secure and resilient elections. And as you very well know, over the past several years, we have been working hand-in-hand -hand across the federal government with those election officials, with the vendor community, and I am very confident that we have done everything we can to make election infrastructure as secure and as resilient as possible. And we've been very clear that there is no information, credible or specific, about efforts to disrupt or compromise that election infrastructure. You know, that said, as I know you know very well, it's a more complex environment than I think we've ever experienced, right? You have cybersecurity threats from nations and from cyber criminals. You have insider threats from those who have institutional knowledge. You've got these horrible physical security concerns at an unprecedented level, threats of intimidation, of violence, of harassment against election officials, polling places, voters. And then, of course, you've got disinformation uh, and misinformation which can be used by foreign adversaries to sow discord among the American people, to undermine confidence in the integrity of our elections, and to incite violence against election officials. And, you know, for, for us who've served and for those in the room who've served, I think it's really important that people understand these election officials are not faceless backroom bureaucrats, right? I mean, they're they're people who are dedicated public servants who live in our towns and our cities and our communities. They're the people we see at the bowling alley, at the PTA meeting, at the, at the restaurant, at church. And, and, and they are dedicated public servants who are just trying to defend democracy. They're our neighbors, they're our friends, they're our relatives. And, you know, they deserve our support. Not just our support, they deserve our admiration, our respect. And, and for God's sakes, they deserve to be safe. They deserve to be safe. I don't know if you saw the op-ed that came out over the weekend. It was by two sheriffs, one in Massachusetts, one in Colorado, different parts of the political spectrum. I was so encouraged by it because, you know, they were coming together to say that elections are non, uh, securing elections is a nonpartisan activity and there is no place for threats. It is unacceptable. And at the end of the day, there, you know, the local law enforcement play a critical role in securing elections. You know, 90% nearly of threats are reported to election officials. And so that connectivity with local law enforcement is absolutely critical. So I was super encouraged by that. And I, I am hopeful that that's emblematic of the relationship with law enforcement across the board. You know, as you know, our physical security mission, we have protective security advisors who do physical security assessments. We spent the last um, several weeks doing nationwide training about how to de-escalate situations. 
but it is a really, really difficult physical security environment. And then, as you know, on disinformation, um, something was picked up yesterday, um, and I wanted to just correct the record on it. I think it, it was something about um, whether we said that uh, adversarial nations were going to have influence. That, that was not true at all. In fact, we are concerned about Russia and Iran and China trying to influence our elections. I think there was some reporting out on Mandiant from Mandiant last week about this. It's a significant concern because you think about these adversaries that are trying to sow discord, that are trying to break us apart about Americans, that are trying to undermine you know, integrity in our elections. And so we are very concerned about this, as I know you personally are. I want to be really clear about what CIS's role is in this. You know, we are not an intel agency. We're not a law enforcement agency. Um, we don't work with the platforms on what they do around content. That is entirely their decision. It is their terms of service. And I want to be very clear about this. We do not censor information. <laughs> Securing elections is a nonpartisan activity. And quite frankly, somebody who's worked in Democratic and Republican administrations, you know, somebody who served the American people my whole life, in peacetime and combat, sworn to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States, including and in particular the First Amendment, I want to be very clear. We do not censor anything. What social media platforms do, what the news does, is entirely their decision. Now, what do we do? We do three things. We make sure that people understand the tactics around disinformation and that Americans understand you know, how to build resilience against it, how to recognize it, how to investigate it, asking about the source, questioning it, not amplifying it. All of that's incredibly important. We have an election security rumor versus reality website. And what does that do? It's election literacy. You talk a lot about civics education. It's election literacy. And so, you know, elections are super complicated. <laughs> it's information that's out there, like what is accurate? And then most importantly, we amplify the voices. We amplify the voices of, of those trusted voices, state and local election officials, who are the people that people should go to if you have any questions at all about voting, how voting works, go to your state and local election officials. Great websites, nas.org, nased.org. They've got frequently asked questions. They've got their own uh, myth busters, fact versus fiction that they've created. They are the best source. And you know, I've been talking to these election officials for the past several months, and they have confidence in the integrity of the vote. They are concerned about some of these physical security disinformation. Um, and they asked me to give a message to the American people and to the media. I think this is really important. You know, there are going to be errors. There are going to be glitches. That happens in every election. But that's why there are multiple layers of, of security controls and resilience built into the system. And so to the media, I, I would really like to ask for everybody's help because these things are going to happen. And we can't, you know, that somebody will forget their key to the polling place. A water pipe will burst. These are not, these are normal things. They're not nefarious. And I think it's super important that folks get the word out on how elections work. And mostly, as you well know, elections are not over when the polling places close. There's so much work to be done to ensure that there's reconciliation of provisional ballots, counting of absentee ballots, military votes. There's canvassing at the state, local, county level. And so um, sometimes it takes days, sometimes it types it. Sometimes it takes weeks to certify those elections, and we all need to be patient. 
We all need to let the machinery of democracy work. We are all in this together. You know, elections are the golden thread that's woven through the fabric of our democracy. And if that unravels, our republic is at risk. And so we all need to come together to protect what is most sacred. So I just, you know, seven days out, um, I'm very passionate about making sure that Americans can vote and have confidence that the vote that they cast is counted. And so, um, again, I'm grateful for everything that you've done to set us up into this place where we can do that mission hand in hand with election officials. So thanks for letting me get that out. But I just think it's so important. Yeah, it's it's absolutely vital. Uh, and and that was a terrific just. Uh, explanation of the, the, the way that CISA fits into what is a, a national effort here led by state and local officials, as you say. Um, but I think particularly the points about the, you know, combating disinformation, so important because we're seeing reports that our adversaries are stepping in and, and amplifying domestic voices and creating their own disinformation around things as fundamental as the time, place, and manner of, a, of, of voting, right? So putting out disinformation that there are no absentee ballots being accepted this year. You know, the, the sort of classic kinds of things about po polling places being closed, election day being moved, all of these kinds of uh, disinformation that is designed to get people to not exercise their right to vote, to dampen turnout, yeah. to create a... a um, fertile, even more fertile field for disinformation after the fact about illegitimacy of the election process. And it really does, particularly in this highly charged partisan environment, create the potential for even more violence, political violence. That's and what so I really worry about. It's never been more important. And yeah. I'm so glad that you're there and, and leading the tremendous men and women Thank at you. DHS. Well, thanks on for this your partnership. Mission. And I think it's also very indicative of the very operational role that CISA has. And you and I have talked about this a, a bit that, you know, when I was uh, leading what was then called NPPD, right, National right. Protection and Programs Directorate, which I always thought was a terrible name. Um, uh, you know, we, we were considered a headquarters component. And part of our big push was not just to change the name, but to be recognized for the operational component that we already were at that time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, most folks don't, don't have any sense, really, of why that's important, right? What is the difference there between being considered a headquarters component and really being recognized as an operational resource for the secretary, for all of our stakeholders within DHS, across the federal government, and across the country? Yeah. Um, but you have really taken that transition from headquarters to operational component that we fought so hard for and made it, really taken it to a new level. Yeah, thank you. With the operational work that you're doing around elections yeah. uh, all across the country, with the operational work that you have are doing with the private sector, you know, really making great strides. And one of the most uh, uh, obvious examples of that is the JCDC. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to give you a minute to talk about the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative. Yeah. Uh, and, and then that came about right about the time that you implemented, started implementing Shields Up yep. in response to Putin's uh, decision to march into Ukraine yeah, right. uh, and attempt to take over a sovereign country. 
And, and so I want to hear a bit about the JCDC. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear about how we're doing on Shields Up and both, you know, a lot of questions about how sustainable is that yeah. over the long term. It's really already important. Already it's been up for a long time. What parts of that, you know, will uh, our sort of operational tempo that cannot be sustained indefinitely? And then what are, what are things that have come out of that Shields Up collaborative effort yeah. that that you hope will be enduring, that you expect will be enduring? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a great question. You know, on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, you all, that was one of your recommendations that actually got put into law with the 2021 NDAA. I think you called it the JICPO, the JCPO, the Joint Cyber Planning Office. And when I heard JICPO, I was like, oh, that doesn't sound very good. And, sort and of if like you, sicky. You didn't yeah, like I didn't like sicky. I mean, the slang Christian was so great, but the worst <laughs> acronyms, the worst acronyms. So, um, yeah, JICPO. Um, but, you know, when I read the legislation, Suzanne, it actually was much more about, it was much more than planning. It was a lot of how do we bring together all of the cyber defense operations and do it in a coherent way. And so we thought JCDC, because it does sound like ACDC, but also because it is more indicative of the fact that it's about defense and that is collaboration at the end of the day. I mean, one of the, you know, I spent most of my career in the Army and the intelligence community at the White House where you could argue that, um, you know, the federal government has monopoly power. In homeland security, cybersecurity, we're a partner. Yeah. We're a partner. And so, you know, in particular, when you're, when you have a mission to protect and defend critical infrastructure and you don't own the vast majority of it, and you're not a regulatory agency, by and large, you need to develop really robust partnerships. So I love the fact that the JCDC early on allowed us to create a platform, a platform to bring together our federal partners. So FBI, NSA, Cybercom, Defense, Justice, ODNI, Secret Service, the National Cyber Director on one platform to work with the private sector. And the first thing that we did, which then paid a lot of dividends with both Log4Shell, if you'll remember the very serious open source vulnerability, and then of course Shields Up, was we developed what we call the Alliance, which are the 20, 25-ish biggest technology companies in the world. The ISPs, the CSPs, the backbone infrastructure, the cybersecurity vendors. Why? Because everything's a technology company these days. Critical infrastructure is all underpinned by technology, and these are the companies that have the most visibility into what is happening in terms of suspicious infrastructure, suspicious activity on our infrastructure. And so um, that has been terrific to work together, to share this information with these companies in a way that's real-time collaboration. It's not just about let's have ad hoc sporadic collaboration where we meet at the field office once a month. And so we built this Slack channel. We brought in all the agencies. We have technology partners, separate ones for finance and energy because of the concerns around potential Russian attacks or retaliation. And it is really, I think, been a game changer in terms of developing trusted, collaborative, real-time, responsive uh, transparent partnerships with the private sector. It's the same thing about, I say about elections. You, you know, great, come learn about it. Be transparent about it. That's what we want to be. We want to be transparent, responsive, uh, and add value. If we're not providing information that doesn't add value to defenders, then, you know, what we're doing is not making a difference. And so we've gotten a lot of great feedback from all of our partners in terms of the work that we're doing. And in Shields Up, you know, we developed this we wanted to have a almost a you know a, a tagline that everybody could remember. Shields up, of course, comes from Star Trek. 
Um, but the idea was we all need to be prepared for this threat. Um, we all need to come together to share pieces of information that can help us proactively get ahead of that threat and then reduce risk and mitigate it. And so we've gotten tremendous feedback from all of our partners on the fact that we leaned really far forward and big credit to the Intel community that worked hard to make sure that we could provide as much strategic warning as possible um, and of course tactical warning as well so that everybody could be prepared and then you know, mitigations that anybody can take up, whether you're a small business, whether you're CEO, empower your CISOs, whether you're a member of the American public, enable MFA, update your software, use a password keeper, uh, be careful about uh, fish, uh, clicking on suspicious links, all the things we talked about extensively during Cybersecurity Awareness Month. But um, it has been, I think, a real rallying cry. We've received great feedback from CISOs all around who say, um, it has given us the ability to raise the bar on our cybersecurity to get a lot done. Um, and, you know, to your very good point, I do worry about burnout. I worry about mental health of the workforce. You know, a lot of people working really hard. And frankly, um, we need a way, as you know, as you're part of the Cybersecurity Advisory Committee, to calibrate that better in terms of regions, in terms of sectors. And that's what we're working on, almost like a national cybersecurity alert system so that we can be more clear about the levels of urgency. I will say, though, now, given what's happening in Russia, what's happening in Ukraine, some of the rhetoric that's coming out of, the, out of Russia, it's not the time to put our shields down. We need to be prepared for potential uh, activity, disruptive, destructive activity. And you know, going back to our point on elections, that's what foreign adversaries want. They want to have disruption. They want to sow discord. They love the partisan rancor. They love the, you know, tearing apart America. And so we need to have our, up our game, reduce our risk, create resilience, and be prepared for the full range of threats, cyber threats, technology incidents, man-made weather events, as you know, terrorist threats, and things that so discord. And so it's been a successful campaign. I'm really looking forward to continuing to grow the JCDC. Eric Goldstein, who you know well, and team, our head of cyber, has done fabulous work. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think the point I would make is it's a partnership platform. Our, our role there is just as important as our FBI partners, our NSA partners, our Cybercom partners, the, the other sector risk management agencies, Treasury, Energy. It's about bringing together the government in a coherent way. And that's why I love um, so much what, what Chris Inglis is doing as the National Cyber Director. This is the other innovation that came out of the Solarium Commission. He's been such a fabulous partner in helping to create coherence and just such a great teamwork atmosphere across the entire government. Now we have our other friend, Nate Fick, coming in as our cyber ambassador. So, you know, great team, but a lot of hard work to do. Yeah. Um, and you talk about <clears throat> the, you know, you're starting to look at a nat kind of national cyber alert um, and trying to learn lessons from the terrorism advisories that went through from, from color-coded to, to more nuanced advisories. But one of the challenges in that environment was always, I remember being at so many meetings within the department <clears throat> about how to articulate the current posture and then when can you ever draw it back down. Yeah. 
And I think you will find the same thing, obviously, in the cyber context. And you, you've talked about the fact with shields up, now is definitely not the time to draw it back down. Uh, it's a little hard. I mean, there will always be something happening. Yep. Yep. So it does seem to me that one of the biggest challenges is to find ways to take what is a stepped up, uh, what I, I talk about, operational tempo, that is that risks sort of burnout, yep. and work with that <clears throat> collaborative to say, how do we institutionalize this stepped up level of uh, hardening uh, in a way that is sustainable? Yeah. Because the reality is, you know, there will never be a time when we can just, whew, well, we don't yeah. have to worry about cyber anymore. 100%. Right? 100%. Um, and so I wonder if you've got any examples of, of things that, that happened maybe for the first time, either with the stand-up of JCDC, maybe in the Log4J, but or, or more particularly in the Shields Up, something that you think is, is now maybe institutionalized. Yeah. And maybe it is the intelligence community having a whole different mindset yeah. about yeah. leaning forward and sharing intelligence. That often happens in a crisis and goes away when we're back to day-to-day. How do we lock it in? It's such a great point. You know, and Chris Inglis and I have written about this really shields up as the new normal. And that's all about raising the bar in a way that we've never had a full focus across the country. And that's so important that we all realize uh, the basics around cyber hygiene. <laughs> you know, there are going to be various levels, as you said, to calibrate. But we're never going to be able to put our shields down. That has to be the new normal. But I am excited at the unprecedented level of operational collaboration, people who have come forward to share information because they realize that we are responding to it. We're being absolutely transparent about what we're seeing and we are looking to add value. You know, the, the JCDC is not just private sector. It's our state and local partners. It's our international partners and, of course, our federal partners. And we've never had that together on one platform. So, I'm incredibly excited about that. You, you know, you ask about how do we institutionalize that. I think there's two really important things. You know, we're talking all about strategy. The two huge strategy things over the next year that I really want us to move the ball on. One is how do we get um, these big companies really to institutionalize cyber uh, cybersecurity as a governance matter, not just a tech thing, but actually something that is about good governance. We had a great meeting last week with uh, General Motors where I was so impressed by how they manage cyber risk. The CEO is actually the chair of the Cybersecurity Risk Governance Committee, and it is, it is all about governance. And so we are thinking about, we know all about CSR, corporate cyber, or social responsibility. We're thinking about corporate cyber responsibility, and really that is a governance matter. My chief of staff, Kirsten, who you know well, Kirsten Todd has done some great thought leadership on this as well. And so it's something where I really want to move the ball on because I think companies are, are embracing this, but, but actually having it as a governance matter and then using metrics like ESG metrics have been done for CSR, but metrics to drive down risk. I'm particularly excited about using the new cybersecurity performance goals that we put out last week, which are essentially a high priority, high risk things that can be done to drive down risk and build resilience. Simple things in terms of um, how we can do it with respect to cost and complexity and impact. You know, they're, they're complementary to the NIST cybersecurity framework, which is great for if you have a lot of resources and can build a comp comprehensive program. But if you're a small business, what are those 
40-ish things that you need to do to drive down risk. And then if you do, do it in terms of high impact, low cost, you can actually put out your roadmap to get stuff done. And that's why I'm excited for big companies to say, wow, we've got thousands of vendors in our supply chain. How do we actually help them reduce risk? And I think the cybersecurity performance goals, which by the way, we had tremendous input from our partners all across the private sector to help build those things. You know, I am all about treating feedback as a gift and I love to crowdsource great ideas. So a lot of great input. We're going to continue to evolve those. We're going to build sector specific ones. But I think this idea of corporate cyber responsibilities and then using tools like the CPGs to drive down risk within the supply chain that are populated by small and medium businesses, I'm excited about that. And the second thing I'm excited about is technology companies embracing secure by design and secure by default. Because technology companies are the bedrock of our critical infrastructure. And if software and products are coming off the line rife with vulnerabilities, we will never solve this problem. Yeah. We have to have MFA by default. We can't charge extra for security logging and SSO. We need to ensure that we're coming together to really protect the technology ecosystem instead of putting the burden on those least able to defend themselves. So very excited about what I'm seeing from the technology companies. And as you know, Bob Lord and I have called for radical transparency on things like statistics around implementation of non-fishable MFA. And so a lot of exciting things going on, but it all starts with this fabulous strategic plan that Val Cofield led and along with our entire team. Um, and that all, all of what we're gonna do to measure our ability to get those objectives done that will ultimately uh, result in reducing risk to America's critical infrastructure. Yeah, terrific. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time talking to CEOs, corporate CEOs and boards, of course, oh. when I was the undersecretary at DHS, and now I'm seeing it from the other side, serving on boards, uh, and it is really interesting. But I think your, your point about corporate uh, cyber responsibility is consistent with part of, as you said, I, my, my big issue these days is, is reinvigorating civics education in this country uh, as a way of building resilience against disinformation, but also as a way of, of strengthening a sense of civic responsibility, right? So before we can even instill a sense of corporate responsibility, we need to remind Americans about that sense of civic responsibility, that you owe something to your community, that you, you are part of something bigger and you therefore have this responsibility. I, you know, you probably, uh, I, I don't know if you experienced this, you just did a lot of traveling for mm -hmm. Cybersecurity Awareness mm -hmm. Month. When I would go around talking to audiences, um, my talking points always had in it the, t the bullet, cybersecurity is a shared responsibility. Yeah. And I would say that and I would get all these blank looks from the audience. Like, you know, people just didn't, it didn't resonate uh, because there was, I think we have failed uh, to really, you know, in a strong way, inculcate that sense of responsibility. So for businesses to understand. And then I think also what, what I have found is that boards are intimidated by this issue, becomes technical very fast. Um, and so talking about it as a coop cob, as a continuity of operations, continuity of business issue, they're more comfortable with that. And what, one of the things I was so impressed with the cyber performance goals, Jen, was that they, they do emphasize that resilience piece, right? It's not just all about threats and vulnerabilities. Focus on consequences. That's consequences to your business. And that's what boards get. They get that piece, right? So I think that's, I think that's really important, really critical. Um, 
you know, you, you mentioned at one point, uh, largely not a regulatory agency. Right. Uh, one of the things I know that you guys also have on your plate that you're working on now is implementing the cyber incident reporting yeah. uh, uh, authority that you've been given. And, and a lot of folks are wondering how, you know, what's that going to look like in terms of how regulatory is that going to be? And I wanted to give you a chance yeah. to address that, you know, uh, a lot of folks don't realize CISA does have a small regulatory program, right? Yeah. CFAS, yeah. the Chemical Facility Anti-Terrorism Standards. Yeah. Um, and, and my sense has always been that that, that uh, regulatory authority has coexisted mm -hmm. with what is predominantly, overwhelmingly, a voluntary partnership with business, as you say, that's mm -hmm. based on 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 that uh, trust, trust. It's yeah. all about trust, and about trust. and so a lot of interest in how you're going to approach this cyber incident reporting in a way that maintains that sense of trust with business, um, and then also how you're going to take that data and turn it into actionable, useful. You know, if we if we don't add value, right? Yeah, Why are we here? Um, products for all defenders to use to, yeah. to, to uh, up our game? Yeah, great question. So CFATS, as you said, um, Chemical Facility Anti-Terrorism Standards goes back to, I think, like 2009. Um, and it uh, covers about 3,300 uh, facilities. Uh, I, I've been amazed. You know, you've got this great chemical security team that's in our infrastructure security division. And the relationship with the chemical sector that we serve as the sector risk management agency for they are very welcoming of those standards. We were just at the Chemical Security Summit, summit and that community are very close partners. Um, and so I think it's a model for how we need to work together. Now, I have no interest in being a regulatory agency. I think your word trust, building trust for partnerships is incredibly important. But what we've learned with that very small authority and the relationships that we've developed with the chemical sector, I think are instructive for what we are doing as we build the cyber incident reporting um, uh, rulemaking process. So we're doing listening sessions around the country. Brandon, our executive director, is up in Boston today hearing from the community. We have a request for information out there. Why? Because we want to make this a very consultative process. This is all about how do we, to your point about collective, you know, it's your, your responsibility, how do we build collective cyber defense for the nation? We're not in the business of naming or shaming or hurt anybody's reputation or stabbing the wounded. We are all about, you report to us, we take that information, do you need assistance? First and foremost, what can we do to help? Now, we know many, many companies, even small, go to, you know, incident response providers in the private sector. That's fabulous. Um, but if they need help, we're there. Most importantly, that information can be used in a way that protects privacy, protects the company because of our expansive information sharing uh, authorities that protect the victim. They can be used in a way that we can share it with others to prevent them from getting hacked. And so it's all about protecting the ecosystem. And uh, it's almost like if you're in a neighborhood, right, and your your neighbor gets gets robbed, you'd want to know that because your level of vigilance goes up, and you'd want to know how did it happen? What can I do to to harden the infrastructure to to make my home safe? And so it's really taking this sort of neighborhood watch approach to the whole cybersecurity ecosystem. How can we make each other stronger? And I think that's you know, incredibly, incredibly important. So we're going through the rulemaking process. It'll probably take about two years or so. For me, I would say the most important thing in this process 
besides transparency of the process is harmonization. There's so much out there the government is asking from the private sector. We need to ensure that we're not adding one more rock to that rucksack that's causing a burden to the private sector, particularly when they're trying to manage something under duress. So two things that were in the legislation that people don't, don't um, talk a lot about, the Cyber Incident Reporting Council, um, that is bringing together all of the people who have a dog in that fight to say, we need to make sure that we're harmonizing what we're asking from the private sector, really important. Um, and secondly, also the Joint Ransomware Task Force was part of that same um, legislation, and we've stood that up. I know there's a whole uh, counter-ransomware summit going on with our international partners, but we're really excited to play a role. But, but getting Circea right will be incredibly important. I do want to pick up on one really great thing you said, and you know, people's eyes glaze over and it gets really technical. You know, we need to do a better job of explaining cybersecurity so that everybody understands we all have a role to play from K through gray, right? And so, you know, we use these terms like multi-factor authentication is the worst term for something that's so important, <laughs> the most important thing, which is why we try and come up with, you know, more than a password. But at the end of the day, um, uh, being able to explain this in terms that people understand what they need to do to keep themselves safe, their family safe, their kids safe, their businesses safe, I think is part of the responsibility. How do we become those cyber storytellers in a compelling way that resonates with everybody across the community, you know, whether we call it cybersecurity or data care or cyber safety, we just need to come up with a way that just like ransomware has become a kitchen table issue, cybersecurity, cyber safety needs to be that same kitchen table issue so that everybody does understand they play a part. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always say with disinformation, we need to do a better job of making uh, the stigma that is attached with spreading false information greater than the prestige of being the first one to share. And similarly, in this secure by design context, right, we need to make the cost of putting out blatantly unsafe, uh, you know, devices or software or whatever it might be, uh, greater than being <clears throat> a penalty, greater than being the first, than the reward of being the very first one. Uh, to market with something, right? Mm -hmm. But we've got to flip those incentives, and 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 similarly for the broader public, then, yeah. right? The 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 shame, if you will, mm -hmm. the stigma of of having you know complete negligence with regard to online safety yeah. needs to be heightened, and the and the reward and the value and the appreciation for doing it yeah. right. It's so the somehow we've got it right. We've got it's to get incentives, those incentives yeah. at every every step of the way. Yeah. Um, one, one thing is funny, yeah. you know, you talk about incentives, the, the, you know, there, it has been about cost and features and performance, and so security. I'm excited. We have a lot of the technology companies we work with very closely, and, you know, they're the heartbeat of innovation and imagination and ingenuity, and, and such great security teams. I am very confident that they're going to embrace this for a safer and more secure technology ecosystem. So I think there are good things that we need to come together and make a real difference, but but we all need to make that, as you just said, a, a priority. Yeah, yeah. We've got to get the market to be more efficient and effective in that regard. That's and, exactly right. um, uh, and I think having technology analysts include a column when they're rating the newest device not just all of its features, but there's yep. a column on security, security so that yeah. consumers get that sense. Hundred percent baked in. Look for, right? Baked in. Yeah. 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 Um, well, Jen, is uh, it over? Yeah. It, it, it's it's been great <laughs> to talk to you. you. I would say just a little plug for those of you who are particularly interested in cyber incident reporting. 
that the chair of that Cyber Incident Reporting Council, Rob Silvers, yep. Undersecretary for Policy, yep. Great was friend. my guest last week. And you can find our fireside chat uh, online. Look there. Uh, but Jen, it's been such a delight to get a chance to yeah, sit down well. and catch up with you. And, you. you know, I told Jen yesterday when we, when we talked uh, before this that uh, she has made Sissa cool, which is wonderful <laughs> as, as uh, somebody who, you know, worked hard to, to bring Sissa into existence. It's yeah. just such a treat to see it in such capable hands. Uh, you and Chris Krebs before you have, have really brought that agency along uh, and matured you. it tremendously and provided great leadership for the tremendous men and work women yeah. who work every day yeah. in that agency. Fantastic so thank you. Thank you for what you do. And thank thanks you for, for being with us. Thank you for you, everything you've done. Very grateful. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time.